Good morning. Good to see you this morning. We're in 1 Corinthians 13 this morning, but I want to re start reading from the end of chapter 12, if you don't mind. So uh, if you have your New Testament open to 1 Corinthians, I'm going to begin with the last little part of verse 31. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. And if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, now I know in part. Then, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. This past week, the words of Augustine of Hippo spoke to me pretty significantly. He wrote in the City of God, Trust the past to God's mercy, the present to God's love, and the future to his providence. What a powerful influence God would have on our lives if every day 
we had that perspective. Trust the past to his mercy, the present to his love, the future to his providential care. What we may not initially appreciate when we take in what Augustine wrote is that we can trust the past to his mercy and we can trust the future to his providence because we can trust the present to his love. It's God's love which is the centerpiece of everything we know about him and our status before him. In fact, love in the present is mercy toward the past, toward the things that I've done wrong, the things that I regret, the things that I could rewrite or whitewash away. The fact that he loves me right now that I understand that his position, disposition, heart toward me is one of love helps me to realize that those things of my past are, are under mercy. That's what love does. Love acts like mercy when it deals with things that I can't change, things of the past. And in the same way, the things about the future, the things that I want to control, the things that I wish would go a certain way, the things that I'm worried about, the things that I just, I want to almost take away from God and say, God, I know how to handle this better than you. Let me have that now. Well, when I, when I understand God loves me right now, right here, then the future is in his providential care, and I can trust that because his love toward me handles my future with the greatest of providence and care. You see, love is vital and important. It really is the centerpiece of our relationship with God. Love matters. Love really matters matters. And I don't know how you process God's love. I know that we can read the words. There are some days when we may pick up our Bible or we hear someone on the radio or it's in a song and we're reminded God loves us. It just kind of bounces off us like a drop of water. I don't know how you moved to really absorb and process the fact that you are an object, an apple of his eye, of his love, of his care. And the proof of that is in Jesus Christ. But when you get that, so to speak, from here to here, it changes our countenance. It changes our emotional status. It helps us manage life in a different way. In fact, it helps us to see life differently, 
to see others differently because when we really fathom that God loves us, we see ourselves differently, our past differently, and our future differently. Love matters. And what Paul wants us to understand is that God's love matters most. It doesn't just uh, matter, it matters most. That's Paul's point, the point he makes in the opening of chapter 3. The more excellent way he calls our attention to in the first three verses. And what's interesting is in chapter 12, when he talked to the Corinthians about the work of the Holy Spirit, and we sometimes think, well, chapter 12, that's the Holy Spirit chapter, or that's the spiritual gifts chapter. But what Paul is talking about is profound when you realize that the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ and his new life, which inaugurates the church, is poured out on his people. That's what Pentecost is all about. And in Christ, that power resides in you. That's the power of God in our lives that Paul is talking about in chapter 12 as he talks about the enabling work of the Holy Spirit within the church and the vitality of the church. Paul is not one to diminish something like that. And yet, he concludes what he is saying with a more excellent way. And then he takes up in the beginning of chapter 13 the very things that kind of spiritually blinded the Corinthians. I mean, knowledge, the enabling gift of knowledge, of prophecy, of faith. These were the things that they prized and epitomized the, the ability to speak in the language of, of men and angels. And Paul picks up on every one of those things, and immediately he makes his point clear. These things matter, but they don't matter as much as love. That's, that's hard, I think, for us to fathom, to fully appreciate among the things that matter in life, not just in spiritual things. I mean, surely we would consider spiritual things as more important. But even among spiritual things, Paul says, love really matters most. In verse 1, he says, without love. And he personalizes it, which is love at work, really. You know, I would be squirming, so to speak, in my, in my seat if Paul were in attendance and speaking this way, but he takes the edge off. He wants to get the truth across. He wants to make his point. He doesn't want to shame or cause people to squirm, so he puts it in the first person. And he says, without love, I produce nothing of value. Nothing of value. Even though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, 
Verse 2, without love. I am nothing of value. I produce nothing of value. I am nothing of value. Though I exercise prophecy, have spiritual insight, profound knowledge, and all faith, whom would we not admire if we saw in one person the manifestation of such spiritual qualities as that? And yet Paul says, without love, I am nothing of value. Verse 3, without love, I gain nothing of value. Even though I give all I have to the poor and hand over my body too, how could he make it any stronger? If you took a piece of paper and filled it with zeros just covered that page, no matter how many zeros you added, it would still amount to nothing. I got to tell you, when we opened this program, when I sent it over to the technicians this morning, and when somebody opened it, they thought, he says, we've got some bugs. <laughs> Those of you who are in computer programming understand, but... It, but if we add just one, a one in front of all those zeros, that one makes all the difference. And that one is love. That one is love. You may find this shocking. Oh, you think that after last Sunday, I'm going to tell you I'm only going to speak for eight minutes. <laughs> no, this is even more shocking. I'm going to speak for seven. No. This is even more shocking. Paul is saying that love is the most important doctrine of the Bible. And yet I can't tell you how many times I have witnessed Christians. And you know what? Maybe, maybe there were times that I was among them. on the strength of doctrine, I have seen Christians treat other Christians with anything but love. In ways that we would all consider, if we could just stand back and see it instead of be a part of it, we would be embarrassed. Love is the greatest doctrine because it should triumph over all of those doctrinal issues. I know that seems hard for some people to believe, but people tell me, I want to know the will of God. Well, here it is. Here it is. The love of God is his will for you. It is his heart. All of his law, all of his will issues from his heart. Do you know that the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, the writer of the gospel, the writer of the three letters, in his first letter, in chapter 4, verse 8, says, Whoever does not love does not know God. 
that is powerful stuff. I don't think he's exaggerating, do you? Would he do that to make a point like sometimes we do? You know, there were a million. <laughs> and there were only five, you know. There had to be a million. Is he exaggerating? I don't think so. In verse 16 of the same chapter, chapter 4, he says, So we know and rely on the love of God, the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. That makes sense to me. In Jesus' teaching, in fact, among Jewish teachers, they called it the yoke, the yoke of the, of the teacher or the yoke of a rabbi. Jesus' yoke is called the great commandment. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the great commandment. It occurs frequently in Jesus' teaching. In fact, when you read his teaching through the eyes of the great commandment, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself, or to read his parables through the eyes of the great commandment, you can see them soaked in the love of God, for God, for one another. What's interesting is that John, James, Peter, Paul all emphasize that if you love God and love your neighbor as yourself, you fulfill the whole law. There's the will of God in love. And that love is shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. What's so beautiful about appreciating the doctrine of of God's love, not only to the way we see our past and see our future, see our past under his mercy, see our lives right in the present under his love and the future under his providence, but the way we see others and see God's will for others. And that's what Paul certainly makes clear here in his letter. In fact, in verses 4 through 7, he answers this question that we have. What is this thing called love? You know, our culture is confused about love. There was a study back in 1991. 91? I bet it's even, you know, if you did the study today, the number would be greater, but they asked a wide range of students, and it was a study focusing on love and they arrived at 216 different answers from the students on the, on the subject, what is love, or the meaning of love. Even the Greeks had four different distinguishable or priority words for love. You've probably heard them. C.S. Lewis wrote a book, if you'd ever like to read about the four loves. It is very illuminating and helps you distinguish the love of God in the New Testament. But what is interesting is there are four loves. There's eros, philia, stergos, and then there's this fourth love, agape. 
agape. Now, I can tell you from personal experience, eros is the word that is frequent, most frequent in Greek literature. And then philia, which stands for friendship or family love and caring. And then stergos, which is affection. Agape hardly occurs at all. And it's weird. It's kind of like this kind of mild, weak fondness or contentment. It's translated in a number of different ways. But when you get to the New Testament, you don't find those other words. You find philia, but you don't find stergos. You don't find eros at all. When you get to the New Testament, agape is all over the place. It's the most prominent word. I mean, you can't, you just can't ride, read very far in the New Testament with run, without running across the word agape. And it's like the biblical writers took agape and baptized it into the gospel. And now it was filled with new meaning through what God had done in Jesus Christ. How God had revealed and demonstrated his love in Jesus Christ through the cross, through the resurrection, in the church, to the world. Agape describes God's love for us, our love for him, and our love for each other. And what characterizes this kind of love is that it's not primarily a love of emotions. We always want to be in the mood. And if we're not in the mood, then how can we love? You know, if I don't have feelings for you, how can I love you? How could we ever fulfill the command of Jesus to love your enemy? Well, I'm sorry, you're going to have to become something other than my enemy before I can love you because I just never have feelings of love for my enemies. You see how different is the love of the world that is fueled, the gas in the tank of love in this culture and this world is fueled by emotion. But agape love is fueled by a mindset. It's fueled by a truth in the heart that shapes our disposition toward the world, toward others. It changes the way we operate in this world. And it, is, it begins with the love of God right here, right now in our lives. That's why I was drawn so much to Augustine's writing about that. Trust your past to his mercy. Trust your present to his love. Trust your future to his providence. But the heart and soul of it is God's love for me. And when I understand the nature of that love, then I understand how I can love my enemies and love others. I can even love other Christians. In fact, it's the most important thing I should do. And I don't have to be annoyed by you. I'll let God take care of you. No, I'm... <laughs> You know, it is, it's interesting how love changes you. You're, 
I, that's another sermon. I could just talk on and on about how God's love over the years has changed my heart. How I see even annoyances differently because of God's love. Doesn't mean that we aren't ever caught off guard or there aren't new challenges that slow us down a little bit. But in the end, there's, there's great joy because there's meaning in everything because you become an agent of the very love of God that touched your life, changed your life into a child of God. And that's a beautiful thing. And so when Paul goes through these uh, things in verses 4 through 7, and as uh, Brian said in the first service, which I thought was so appropriate, and maybe he said it again, but how, how it becomes personal what Paul is talking about, as though the characteristics of love actually are personified or become a person. Jesus Christ, if you will. Paul himself as he speaks. And that kind of colors the way he talks about it. But he begins with patience. Which of us would start to write such an important piece on love, God's love, and start with patience? I mean, it kind of throws you for a loop. Most of us are impatient with impatience. But this kind of patient love is possible because it comes from God. It's God's love in us, and we know God is patient with us because it is that patience that leads us to the beautiful things that God has in store for us. We call it repentance because we begin to change. Repentance means to change our mind and our heart. And God's patience allows us to change and become more and more like him. So patience is the first part. Kindness. Patience and kindness go together like a couple in a good marriage. Patience can be passive, but to be patient with somebody and then to respond by being kind to them, that's a triumph of love. You see, everything, uh, whether you talk about God's mercy or his providence, whether you talk about patience or kindness, it all comes from the same source. It's love in action. It's love accommodated to the specifics and details of an everyday existence. I, call, I can recall telling you that what love does in verses 4 through 7 pinpoints the very things the Corinthians don't do. If you read it in that light, it's quite illuminating. But what unifies everything that love does here is one thing. For example, why patient? Why kind? Why not envious, boasting, arrogant, and rude? Why not insist on your own way? Why not be irritable? Why not be resentful? You know, keep a record of wrongs. Keep your grudges fresh and alive. Why not, you know, rejoice in wrongdoing? Revel in it. Why rather rejoice in truth? Why bear all things? You know, why put up with it? Why believe? 
You know, why, why believe is in, I don't always see the evidence for it, but I still believe. Why hope? Why endure? One thing, because of God's love and seeking God's best for another. Because that's the best we know. And that is the meaning of agape. That's how I have defined it over the years, after years of studying on this subject of love. Because Paul begins the next chapter and he says, pursue love. And then he tacks on the actual enabling works and gifts of the Spirit. But pursue love. And in my pursuit over the years, it has shown me that the definition, the, what really captures the, the meaning of all of the different uses of agape is this. Deliberate pursuit of God's best for another. And that is what the answer is to all of the things that Paul says. Why would I be patient? Why would I? Because I need to help you realize God's best for your life. I want to be an agent of what God wants to do in your life because God wants to accomplish and achieve good things in your life. If I'm selfish, then it's all about me, and you might as well give up. But if it's about what God wants to do in other people's lives, then you'll see all of these things here in verses 4 through 7, all of these characteristics, all of these statements realized. We are weak, but love is strong. In verses 8 through 13, read it again and just notice how love goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. That's great power. That's great patience. That's great kindness. That's great truth. That's, that's great everything. We are weak, but love is strong. Love endures. When I became a Christian, the first question I asked the Lord, and I was alone in the dark on a canal bank in 1972. I believe I was three then. No, I was 19. I did do. I said, how, how can I do this by faith? That was the question that guided me. Lord, teach me how to do this by faith. In everything throughout the day, how can I do this by faith? Because everything else I had done before was just the way I would do it. And when you ask the question, how can I do this by faith, you are, in a sense, uh, surrendering your decision-making, your will, your attitude, your disposition and outlook to the Lord. You're saying, Lord, how can I do this in your power? How can I do this under your influence and strength? Now there's a second question. If you would just ask that question and then ask this question, you would be well on your way to spiritual growth in your life. How can I do this by love, your love? How can I do it by faith? There's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then how can I do this by love? There's the great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything you do falls 
into that category because love is not just a sentiment or an emotion. It's an ethic. It's an ethic. It helps you decide between truth and falsehood, between right and wrong. It steers your life. And it's an ethic that's grounded not in the collective efforts of human confusion. It's grounded in the love of God in Christ in the cross, sacrificial love, which we know firsthand and can be the greatest assurance and motivation of our lives. Swallowing concern for ourselves is so hard. It takes practice. Discover how God uses it in your life to bring about good because it will require patience and kindness. And people are difficult, but you will grow and you will discover that in your pursuit of God's best for another, you are experiencing and discovering God's best because he will grow you and draw you near and you will share his heart and his motives and his outlook on life. You know, I have, a, I have some grandkiddos now and uh, I sing to them when I put them to bed because my grandmother sang to me Grandma Johnson. And she would hold me in her arms and she would sing me different songs, different choruses. And the one I loved the most was Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. We think of that as a children's song, but it's the heart of my theology. The Bible tells me so, that he loves me. I am weak but he is strong. Begin there. To know the heart of God toward you and toward others in the great commandment, the yoke of Jesus' teaching, the transforming influence and truth, even on the language of a Greek word, and across the New Testament, there's nothing more important than you loving with the heart of God. So start when you get in your car, or maybe when you just are out, I hope you stick around and chat a little, greet someone. Yeah, I know you want to rush off to see the game, hey, but maybe 
you know, maybe God's best might, maybe that chess piece in God's, on the board of God's plan for your life might be moved in the right direction if you, if you reached out to somebody a little bit or as you're driving along or when you get to the store next time and uh, yeah, got to deal with human beings just like yourself. Uh, maybe when you get to work or school or there's that bully or that boss. I don't know what the situation is. You know what? The, these are really trivial things. They really are. Right, do, you, do you watch the news? Do you read the papers? These are our middle-class trivial problems. And I think it's time for us now to start treating those trivial problems in the power of God's love because God has bigger and bigger things for you and me in our lives. And he, we're in training for those bigger things. They haven't come maybe yet, but they will. Because God is going to position you in a place where you can make a bigger splash then than you can now if you begin walking with him every day in the little things, the middle-class trivia of our lives. In beautiful America where we have complete freedoms and tremendous wealth that we don't even realize and running water and toilets that flush and everything else. And God just says, just love others like I love you. And start right where you're at. Start with your spouse. Start, start with your kids. Start with your boss. Start with your students. Start with your teacher. Start with that person on the road. Start with that lady in the store. Start with the guy that you can't stand on the news. Start, 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 and see what God can do in your life. Because God is about something bigger than our private concerns. And someday, he's going to do some incredible things through you because of the love that he wants to operate in your life, command your heart, beautify your countenance, and make you the person like Jesus Christ that he has destined you to be. Sound good? I, I think it's a pretty exciting. It's the adventure of a life. Stand with me. Let me close this in prayer. You know, even after I pray, I'll be up here along with pastoral staff, elders, and spouses. If you'd like to come up and pray with any one of us, uh, maybe for yourself, maybe for someone on your heart this morning. You know, that's love. It always is sweeter when we pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. We pray that you will refresh our spirits and excite us about the transforming power of your love to change the world, to change history, to change eternity. If only we can let your love change us. Father, thank you for such love as we know in Jesus. And it's in his matchless name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you.